it's my pleasure to be here this morning. I'm going to be continuing our series in Acts. Um, so let's just have a little bit of a think about where we are up to. We began by looking at how the book of Acts is telling the story of how a small messianic Jewish sect became a multi national, multi-ethnic, international movement. It's the story of Jesus moving through the Holy Spirit in the disciples. It's an incredible story. And we've talked about how the resurrected Jesus gave the disciples a blueprint for the sequence of the restoration promise. So um, that the, the gospel would be spread in Israel first, so Jerusalem, then uh, Judea and Samaria, and then to the nations. And we've also talked about how the, the voice that we're hearing narrate the story of Jesus and the story of the Spreading Jesus movement is a voice that is already decades into that movement and is writing retrospectively about it. There's so much that Luke doesn't tell us about these early decades. There's loads that we don't ever know. So he's not just offering a history. He's offering us a theological understanding about the meaning of those early years. So he's really selective in the portraits of the people that he chooses to write about. And what we're going to read this morning is going to show us that uh, really well. So as we open up to chapter 10, that's where we're going to be today. Let's just recap some of the more recent events that have just happened. So we've explored the first movement of the disciples out of Jerusalem following the stoning of Stephen. Um, and the gospel message gets shared um, in Samaria through Philip um, in Acts chapter 8. And then moving through chapter 9, Luke in just a few short paragraphs takes us from the enormous moments of Saul's conversion. So Sam took us through that last week. Saul will become the main representative disciple to the nations. That is where Luke will spend most of the second half of Acts looking. And we're reintroduced back into Peter's story now. And so the last part of chapter 9 um, is focusing on Peter and his movements. Now, I'm a lover of a map. Those of you that know me will know that. Um, so we're going to have a look at this one. Um, as we track Peter's journey and try and get a sense of the movement out of Jerusalem that is happening through Peter into Judea and Samaria. So from Jerusalem, which I'm hoping will have just become circled on the map that you're looking at, he moves northwest uh, towards the coast. And we're told about him healing a paralysed man uh, in Lydda and then raising a woman from the dead in nearby Joppa like casual, right? Like we're barely told much about that sto those stories at all. But that's where we leave Peter at the end of chapter nine. So he's staying on the coast in Joppa with a man named Simon, who is a tanner. So that is the fairly undesirable job of turning um, animal skin into leather. So now we go into chapter 10. Let's see what Luke has for us. There are two different pairs of shoes that I want us to step into this morning. Let's step into our first as we meet a Gentile, a Roman centurion named Cornelius. He's living in the port of Caesarea. So again, I'm hoping that map is coming back on. It is along the coast, about 30 miles north of Joppa, where Peter is staying. Let's read verses one through eight, first of all. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. 
Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Okay, so our first pair of shoes then, Cornelius. To appreciate Cornelius, we first of all need to understand how the first century world viewed Rome. A city and an empire built on military success and aggressive expansion and relentless brutality. It was in its golden age in this moment. So let's take a look at a second map. Geographical treat for us all, I know. Um, and so on this map, you will see like huge swathes of territory that are highlighted yellow. That's the Roman Empire. And so the dominance of Rome on the Mediterranean world, on Europe, um, on North Africa, on Western Asia is clear. And it was the military officers who exercised this dominant power. So military officers like Cornelius that would exercise the dominance of Rome on the local people. So as we step into Cornelius' shoes, we see from the perspective of a middle-ranking officer in the army which the world feared, commanding a unit of around 100 men, a man of some power, an authority of respect and of honour. And he must have been a good and trusted soldier since Caesarea was an important military base. Now there were plenty of insignificant places that an incompetent soldier could be sent in the Roman Empire, but Caesarea wasn't one of them. Yet, as Luke introduces us to the first Roman in Acts, the stereotype of an aggressive, of a brutal Roman military officer is completely overturned, which is in keeping for Luke, as we read his account in, in his gospel of, in chapter seven of a centurion whose faith amazes Jesus. So in Cornelius, we meet a man who served Rome, but honoured one God, immediately distinguishing him from the Roman polytheistic culture, a man of prayer, a seeker of God, a man who had great respect for the Jewish people and their traditions. And we're later told that they in turn had great respect for him too. He was generous with his money, giving gifts to the poor and to those in need. And it seems that at the moment, he accepts the fact that he is outside of the people of the God that he is honouring. Since we're later told that he was an uncircumcised man, meaning that he had not become a proselyte. So in this case, a proselyte would be a non-Jewish person who has rejected, completely rejected their own, own culture, their own ethnicity in order to fully embrace Judaism and all of its practices. So the fact he was uncircumcised is significant and, and it is a detail that we're going to be returning to. Yet Cornelius was waiting humbly, using his time and his resources to worship this God of Israel in the way that he could. These are unexpected qualities for a good Roman soldier, to say the least. Let's press pause on Cornelius. And we're going to return to Peter now after leaving him, him in Joppa with Simon the Tanner. So verses 9 through 16. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheet 
was taken back to heaven. Cornelius's vision, so seeing an angel who told him to send for Peter, perhaps makes a bit more immediate sense for us than what is going on here. What's going on in this vision? It's hugely important in content and full of powerful symbolism. So let's step into Peter's shoes now and try and see from his perspective to understand his vision. And to grasp its significance, we first of all need to have a bit of an appreciation for Jewish food laws. So as a devout Jew, there were many food laws that Peter would have followed, including a whole list of animals that were kosher, so permitted, and non-kosher, forbidden. And it would seem that although Peter is, is a follower of Jesus and has been for many years now, he still very much kept to those food laws since his response um, was to say that he'd never eaten anything unclean. And food laws might seem like a strange concept to us. They do to me. Um, but adherence to these laws were a really important way of marking out the Jewish people from their non-Jewish neighbours. It was the practice of circumcision, of keeping the Sabbath, of observing the, um, the festivals. All of these things were a way of marking out the Jewish people as distinct and as separate. And the food laws in particular profoundly impacted relationships between Jews and Gentiles. You see, a Jew visiting a Gentile couldn't be sure whether food that had been prepared would be clean or whether it was prepared according to the requirements of the law or whether it had even been tainted by an idol. To eat with Gentiles was to risk defilement. And this was a strong incentive for Jews to not fellowship with Gentiles at all, to the point where Judaism in that day, at that time, had made it unlawful for a Jew to even enter a Gentile's home. And remember that, we're going to be returning to that point as well. And coupled with that, it was only about 150 years ago for Peter that the Syrian king Antiochus had made it illegal to be Jewish in Jerusalem for three years. Illegal to be Jewish. And there was an uprising, there was a, rev a revolt by a group called the Maccabees. So it was, it's not in the too distant past that um, ancestors have bled and died for, for the kosher laws, for the freedom to practice circumcision, for the freedom to keep the Sabbath. These are really potent cultural symbols that we're being introduced to here. So as we stand in the shoes of this um, first century Jewish ex-fisherman and follower of Jesus, we can perhaps start to appreciate his horrified response to the instruction to eat these non-kosher animals, mixed, mixing and defiling those that are kosher. Surely not, I've never done that before and I'm not about to start now, like they're unclean. And then comes the response that echoes through the centuries and challenges all kind of prejudice still today. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Peter didn't know, of course, what was about to happen. He didn't know what the vision was supposed to mean. We're told that he puzzled over it. He had to ponder it. We know because Luke has already clued us in moments before as we read about an encounter between a Roman centurion and an angel of the Lord 30 miles away. We know that there are men that are about to come knocking on Peter's door. As Peter will realise, this vision is about people. So let's continue, shall we, and see how these stories become woven together. We're going to jump forward a little. The men sent by Cornelius um, have found where Peter is staying. And whilst they're waiting outside, the Holy Spirit confirms to Peter that he should listen to them and go with them. So he invites them in, which is already barrier breaking in and of itself, and they set off the next day. So we're going to pick it up partway through verse 23. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. 
The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. The vision is about people. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? And then Cornelius recounts his vision to Peter before saying in verse 33, now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. This is a deeply human story, including Cornelius's over-enthusiastic but understandable faux pas of falling at the feet of Peter and worshipping him before Peter hurriedly telling him to get back up again. But this is a story that tells us not only of Cornelius's transformation, but actually of Peter's. There is a monumental shift of thinking going on here for Peter, even in as something simple as in those few words, Peter entered the house. We cannot miss the importance of that as modern day non-Jewish readers. A Jew is entering the house of a Gentile. That is huge in that cultural context. Peter is waking up to the fact that God has his eye on the whole human race to redeem them, not just the ethnic covenant people of Israel. So the story of Israel, as we've looked at, is not just about Israel. It's about the family of Abraham becoming the family of all nations so that the divine blessing and the new humanity can encompass all humanity, me, you, all of us here, this is good news. And we see that Peter now understands this as he starts talking to Cornelius and his household. So verse 34, then Peter began to speak. I now realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And then he continues telling Cornelius the story of Jesus in really the barest of outlines from what Luke records. Yet the story carry power of a new kind as the Holy Spirit came, as the Holy Spirit moved, as Peter reveals the personal work of Jesus to this Gentile and to his family. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptised with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. This is a moment we've been waiting for since the first two chapters of Acts. The Holy Spirit comes on the Gentiles as well, manifesting himself through the speaking of tongues, just as Holy Spirit did on the day of Pentecost in the Apostles. And after the Spirit being poured out in Acts chapter 2, Peter quoted from the prophet Joel, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, And it shall come to pass that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And now Peter is witnessing this prophecy being fulfilled again in a way that astonished 
those that looked on. The fact that the Holy Spirit moved amongst the Gentiles so obviously and with such strong echoes of Pentecost meant that it was undeniable for all those present that God clearly had accepted these Gentiles into his family just as they are as his sons and daughters. Cornelius had admired, he had honoured and worshipped the God of Israel from afar. Now, as he hears and as he receives the good news of Jesus, I always crumble at this point, I'm so sorry. He becomes part of the family. Like, do we see how significant this is for us? Because we don't find out any more about Cornelius from this point on. He disappears as quickly as he came. His subsequent life with Jesus, unknown and hidden in the depths of history. But the impact of this encounter between Holy Spirit and the Gentiles has huge importance for the early church and for us. So why these shoes? Why this story? So like we recapped at the start, like there is a theological narrative that Luke is wanting to communicate. His decision to include this particular story has meaning. This is what I think that meaning is. Who is it that is included in the family of God? And on what terms? And on what terms? And that is one of, if not the most controversial issue that is rocking the New Testament. And it's driving the New Testament letters, certainly Paul's letters. Luke is showing us that though Gentiles too had to repent and believe in Jesus, just as the Jews did, they did not have to become Jews before or after that repentance. They would not need to wear certain head coverings in church. They would not need to eat only uh, kosher foods. They would not need to make pilgrimages to Jerusalem for the feast. They would not need to observe dozens of ceremonial laws and rituals in order to be forgiven, to be baptised and to receive the Spirit. Three times in his work, in chapters 10, in chapters 11 and chapter 15, Luke discusses the conversion of Cornelius and its implication for the church, mostly actually in terms um, and in, in discussions around circumcision. And in the first part of chapter 11, we're not going to read it, but please do go away and read it. Um, Luke records Peter's justification to the criticism he receives from the circumcised believers back in Jerusalem um, who are criticising him about his interaction with Cornelius, particularly his his, um, decision to go into his home. Peter's response was to emphasise the voice and the leading of the Spirit. Over and over again, he does that. And the way Luke writes it is that there is some major repetition from what we've just read in chapter 10, almost word for word at points. So purely the space alone, the space that Luke dedicates to this encounter between Cornelius and Peter, it reveals that we are dealing with a highly controversial topic for the early church. It reveals that this is a pivot point for the entire book as Luke is about to shift and focus on Paul and his missionary journeys. And it is a turning point in the redemption story. There is a seismic shift in understanding going on here as it's becoming clear that there are no ethnic, no geographical, and there are no cultural barriers in the way of everyone and anyone being offered forgiveness and new life in Jesus. The global family of God is where everyone is invited. It's where everyone is welcomed, is forgiven, healed and transformed in Jesus through the Spirit on the exact same terms, because it is about Jesus. That's it. It's about Jesus and what he did. So we are all invited into the family of God because of him. 
And I wonder whether there's another reason why Luke focuses um, on this encounter in so much detail. The fact that Cornelius was not only a Gentile, but a Roman at that, it gives us glimpses of this sequential promise of restoration that Jesus gave in Acts 1.8 being actually realised. Like we may still be a long step geographically before the gospel is heard to the ends of the earth, like Caesarea is hardly the ends of the earth from Jerusalem. But actually we are only a short step culturally now from the gospel message being shared to the then known world. What an incredible story. And as I step out of this story, as I step back into my own shoes, as it were, and as I've been pondering and asking the Holy Spirit, like, what is it for us that we can hold on to from this encounter, from this recount? I'm really struck by the third character that takes centre stage, the voice and the leading of the Spirit. Now, I realise I'm applying my imagination uh, to what we've just read, but I just wonder, like, was Peter, as he made that 30-mile journey up the coast from Joppa to Caesarea, knowing he was on his way to enter the house of a Gentile, was he thinking about what that group of circumcised believers back in Jerusalem might say? Was he already aware that he would need to explain and justify his actions, that they'd be questioning, that they would be critical? Following Peter's vision, like I said, we're told that he puzzles over it. And in that process of puzzling, the Spirit speaks to him really clearly that there were going to be men knocking on his door and that he was to go with them without hesitation. And again, I just wonder, if not for that vision, if not for that word from the Spirit, if those three men had come knocking, would Peter have gone? Or would he have refused them? based on his own understanding, based on his own cultural and religious understanding, based on his own prejudices, to prejudge something, would he have refused them? But Peter's curiosity in puzzling over what the Lord had shown him, the time and space he dedicated to inquiring of the Lord and to listening and leaning into the Holy Spirit meant that he could respond with obedience, even if it didn't mirror his own human understanding. To take a momentary sidestep, if I may, um, things around me have felt um, pretty noisy recently and I can already tell I'm not going to get through this without crying. So I'm so sorry, everyone. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. It's felt noisy and busy, lots of opinions, lots of perspectives, lots of tensions to hold. And I've been so aware of the pressing need for discernment and for the Spirit's leading in times that have felt confusing and complex. And um, one evening a few weeks ago uh, was not a great evening. I was actually trying to do a bit more prep for this and shockingly staring into a computer screen was not helping my mood very much at all. Um, so I, um, I went to sit outside as the sun set, um, just quietly and just listening not really thinking about anything. And as I listened, I heard planes going overhead, her bins being wheeled out, ready for bin day the next day. I heard kids playing, doors slamming, someone sweeping, cars going by, like lots of noise, lots of activity. And as I sat there, I just yearned for the presence of Jesus, for his voice. I recommitted again my desire to be obedient to him, 
to lay down hurt and frustration and anger that had actually just made my heart even noisier. And as I did that, my ear suddenly tuned in to the sound of buzzing just a couple of feet away as bees were collecting their pollen. And it struck me in that moment that actually the sound that had been closest to me the whole time had been drowned out by other sounds much further away. My ear hadn't been tuned in to the thing that was closest. And in that moment, I just felt an impression of the Spirit, the Spirit's whisper say to me, you can hear me. I am right with you. Take the time to listen. Tune into my voice and you will hear me. Sometimes for me, God's voice is loud. Most of the time it's a whisper and I have to choose. I wonder if it's the same for you. Church family, there is nothing more important than us tuning into the voice of the Spirit. No one else's opinion, certainly not our own opinion, <laughs> no other circumstances should be louder than us tuning in to the voice of the Spirit. And we know his voice. We do. In the Gospel of John in, in, uh, in chapter 10, it talks about how Jesus is the good shepherd and we as his sheep know his voice, leading us to quiet waters, leading us to green pastures, restoring our souls. No other voice can do that. And whilst um, the Spirit's voice and leading are absolutely for us individually, for our own encouragement, for our own guidance, for our own discernment, for our own challenge. And what a wonderful thing that is, that Jesus has made a way for us to hear him with such intimacy. What I'm struck between this encounter of, of the Spirit and of Peter is actually is that the Spirit's voice was enabling Peter and showing him where to be a witness as he invited another person into the family of God in a way which challenged his assumptions and his understanding. I want us to be a people, church family, in 2021, of Jesus at work through the Holy Spirit in us as we are sent, as we are sent, so that all are welcomed into the family of God. Do I have that perspective? Do I lean in and listen to the Holy Spirit, expectant and anticipating that what he talks to me about, what he speaks to me about, isn't only for me or about me, but about how he wants to work through me? Do I have that expectation? Am I someone who discerns the Spirit and how he is leading? Am I curious to explore when it seems puzzling? Do my own prejudices and assumptions or concerns about what others might think shape the Spirit's ability to speak and me to hear and my ability to respond in obedience. These are some of the questions I'm asking myself in response to this story. And perhaps they resonate with you as well. And perhaps they don't. And that's really fine. And you can have a beautiful day. But you know what? For those of you where these do resonate too, where you have a sense this morning of, yeah, I too want to recommit to welcoming the Holy Spirit to be the loudest voice in my heart, in my spirit, in my mind. Let's take the time to do that, shall we? Because I don't have any strategies. I have got any, there's nothing more. I've got no three point plan of how we can make space. Like there's, there's a whole bunch of other resources that you can find that will do that, I'm sure. Other than to say, let's be a people who make time and let's be a people who make space 
for the Holy Spirit to speak to us. And let's be a people who choose to respond with obedience. That's where I find myself this morning. So if you do too, like um, Sun, I don't know if you just want to come back up and help us transition out. Um, the band are going to lead.